I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner. A weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today, I wanted to take a look at a serious subject, one that has sadly led to some people over the years leaving the church. And that is what to do, how to confront issues that are raised by critics of the church. Many of these can easily be solved just by a little bit of research because what's being provided is not true. One of the things that does become a problem for some people is if something they've been taught turns out not to be true. But in those kinds of cases, it's really important to distinguish between ideas and beliefs and genuine doctrine of the church. Here is an example to maybe illustrate that point. Shortly after the church was founded and the Book of Mormon was published, when people read in the pages of the Book of Mormon, land northward and land southward, and a narrow neck of land between them, most believed, assumed, that the land northward was all of North America, that the narrow neck of land was... Central America, and that all of the land southward was all of South America. That turns out to be impossible when you look at many of the passages in the Book of Mormon at the distances involved, the distances that armies marched, how long it took them, those kinds of things. And then when you add to it DNA studies that show that there are many different backgrounds for people who are Native Americans. Some came from Asia. Some came from the Middle East. Some came from other places. And so it's a huge conglomeration. If you even look at it in terms of languages, there are over 1,500 Native American languages, and the time has just been too short. Even if you go back to 400 AD, for all of them to have somehow descended from one group. That is just not possible. So when Latter-day Saints bring with them preconceptions or preconceived notions about the way things are, and then when critics of the church, and I'll bring one to mind now, and that would be the CES letter, which I am not a fan of because it makes some huge false assumptions in many, many places. And I, I just, I'm just not a fan that particular work 
pushes really hard on the DNA issue, for example, and on Book of Mormon geography. And it goes on to say things like, well, in 2014, there was a statement that the church made. It's on the internet, and it concedes that uh, many Native Americans came from Asia. And so the claim that Native Americans are Lamanites is not true. Well, that is way too simplistic. It is true that many Latter-day Saints assumed or believed, based on the information in the Book of Mormon, that all Native American Indians were Lamanites. But as you look at the details, that being impossible, we have to shift our belief. And that doesn't change anything in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon itself does not say all of the land northward from the Panama Canal is the land northward in the Book of Mormon. It doesn't equate that. It doesn't say where any of the geography is vis-a-vis current locations. Of course it does not. And so when the church updated its its preface to, to the Book of Mormon, I think that was a wonderful thing. What they did was they said, and this is, this is fabulous, um, DNA analysis showed there were many Native Americans who were from places other than the Middle East. Some came from the Middle East, but not all. So the Book of Mormon, shortly after many DNA studies were released, said, quote, this is at the beginning of the Book of Mormon in the introduction page, quote, the Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. They changed it to among the ancestors of the American Indians. That's a wonderful change. It doesn't change the content of the book. It changes what we know about it and fine-tunes it and makes it better. And rather than being a problem, I think it's a wonderful showing that the leaders of the church stay on top of many of these issues. Now, let me throw out another example dealing with the CES letter. One of the things that the CES letter claims is that, quote, there is absolutely no archaeological evidence to directly support the Book of Mormon or Nephites and Lamanites. And then it goes on to talk about how the numbers that are described in the Book of Mormon, the millions and millions, that's that's just impossible. That is absolutely impossible. Now, <laughs> there have been some studies recently done, some scientific um, uh, analyses done through LIDAR, which is more or less a, a radar from the air, from the bottom of an airplane around the Yucatan Peninsula, where most scholars believe the Book of Mormon lands are located or were located. The remnants now are located. And it turns out that when the CES letter came out, there wasn't enough information archaeologically to say that there were many, many millions and millions of people. But since it came out, critical of the church, these LIDAR experiments took place, and they show that there were more people living in the Yucatan Peninsula during Book of Mormon times than lived in Europe 
there were several tens of millions. The, the estimates are between 15 and 25 million people lived on the Yucatan Peninsula. That is plenty of people to provide the numbers described in the Book of Mormon. Now, the flip side could now be asked of the writer of the CES letter. Well, are you going to amend or remove that section that says there's no evidence? Well, there is now. You ask the church to make changes or point out when they make changes, but are you willing to make the changes in the CES letter that accord with the new LIDAR discoveries of that many million people that would easily support the descriptions of the great battles that happen in the Book of Mormon. Uh, today, gee, that hasn't happened. I, I wonder why. You can take a look on the website, which I've done many, many times. I, I haven't seen that change made. Gosh, I wonder when it's coming. Well, critics seem to be involved in a one-way discussion. Here's another area where critics often come at the church, and that is the Bible passages that are found in the Book of Mormon. Now, this has always been a curious one to me because the claim is inevitably made, and this happens with the CES letter as well as many other ones. The claim is made that it's exactly in this certain place, exactly like the King James. So that means it was plagiarized or stolen or just placed there. However, in other places, it means it's that the comment is made, well, it's been changed. And so that's an acknowledgement that the Bible isn't accurate and some of the changes may not be all that good either. And they may not be accurate. Well, you can't have it both ways. And the real truth is that how would, if if you were Joseph Smith or if you're presuming to be God, which is a little bit of a different thing to do, exactly how would you translate a book into English? This is This is quite a fascinating question to ask. When we come back from our break, I want to talk a little bit about the whole issue of translation because it is something that is in many cases used against the church very, very improperly. So on the other side of the break, translations of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, into other languages and many other issues. Stay tuned. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Our discussion today centers around some of the things that critics say about the church. We've talked about a few of those already. Here's another one, uh, which we we left our break with, and that is translation, uh, the wording, in other words, of the Book of Mormon, when it when it specifically quotes King James verses from the Bible. Is that right or wrong? Here's, um, here's a comment straight from the CES letter. When the King James translators were tr- translating the King James version of the Bible between 1604 and 1611, they would occasionally put their own words into the text to make the English more readable. 
We know exactly what these words are because they're italicized in the King James Bible. What are the 17th century italicized words doing in the Book of Mormon, word for word? What does it say about the Book of Mormon being an ancient record? Well, um, it probably says that it's an ancient record. And for the very reason that the King James translators put those words in there so that English readers would understand them as they were translating something that was originally an ancient record, well, maybe God and Joseph Smith did the very same thing. What does that say about it being an ancient record? And just what would, if this, if this somehow is wrong, what would be the correct way to do it? In view of the fact that if you use the identical King James language, if you're quoting from the King James Bible or quoting from Isaiah and using King James English to be more precise, what better translation would there be? Or should a totally different one be used? There are no easy answers to this. One of the things that has always fascinated me is looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Bible Dead Sea Scrolls, because two-thirds of the Dead Sea Scrolls approximately were not Bible books. They were other sacred, other sacred writings, and then some of them were just kind of secular writings. Plato's Republic, for example, and many other things were found in the CES, or excuse me, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the CES letter, this criticism is made that the wording of the King James translators is used in some places. And in some places, the criticism is that it's not exactly used. The King James translation isn't exact. It's been changed. Well, what would you use? If you go back and look at some of the modern translations of the Old Testament, some of those look really odd to most modern readers. When you do a translation from an ancient writing, you have to look at meaning. You have to look at readability. You have to look at understanding. You could try for a word-for-word translation. Those often are not the best at conveying meaning. You could try for something that conveys meaning, but it still isn't very readable. There are a lot of different translation efforts that are underway. If you want to read some that are quite different in their tone, look at the King James Bible side by side with the contemporary English version and perhaps the New Revised Standard Version. And you could even take a look at some of the other translations, the NIV, the New International Version, or the Good News Translation. The Good News Translation sort of bridges the older Bible translations and keeps some of the words in it like grace and and some of the other words that are favorites and have great religious connotations. When you look at, you know, like charity, for example, that would be another one. Whereas contemporary English Bible would use love instead of charity, and instead of grace, it would use kindness. God's kindness is charity. Which is right and which is wrong? That's very hard to say. What I can say, when I look at the 
Isaiah passages in the Book of Mormon is I would be hard-pressed to come up with the correct alternative. What would that alternative be? What should God have done instead? Or what should Joseph Smith have done as God was giving him inspired meaning? Should he have used non-King James wording? Well, that would have been very presumptuous, and people would never have accepted that. Should he have used slightly altered King James language? Well, in some cases he did, and he gets criticized for that by the CES letter. Should he use exactly the language of the King James Bible? Well, in places that happens, and there's criticism for that too of plagiarism, even when it's stated to be quotes from Isaiah, for example. So when these criticisms are made, well, what would be the right way to translate? If this is an ancient work, exactly what would the right way to do it be? Another criticism comes up, well, you have discussions in the Book of Mormon that were hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Book of Mormon events start at 600 BC, and yet you read from the early parts of First Nephi about Jesus Christ. They say nobody was talking about Jesus Christ in 600 BC. You can't translate that. You could never go back and find the words Jesus Christ in whatever ancient Jewish writing was there. And that's true. What you could find, though, was probably the word Messiah or Messiah or Savior. And if the purpose of translation is to render into modern-day English the meaning that was being conveyed by the original writer or speaker, as in First Nephi, if they are talking about the Messiah or the Savior to come, what better word for believing Christians would there be than Jesus Christ? Now, if you use those words to convey it into English, that says something to us now today. But the first one, Jesus, Yesu, that has Hebrew roots. Christ, Christos, comes from Greek roots. They mean the same thing. So you're really saying Messiah, Messiah, or Savior, Savior, or Anointed One, Anointed One. But the connotation for us in modern day, English-speaking lands is one of the Savior, the Messiah. And so I find that translation to be absolutely fine and not anachronistic in the least. So these are the kinds of, of word games and criticisms that come upon people from critics of the Book of Mormon. And these are just some examples of the ways that people who are listening might want to consider just stepping back and thinking about this. Now, if you want some really good sources about how to respond to some of these critics, I can give you a few. One of the very, very best is FAIR. You can type in FAIR Mormon, and it will find the website very, very quickly. You can find FAIR LDS, and it will find the website very, very quickly. You can type in FAIR Latter-day Saint, and it will find the website very, very quickly. It's not an official arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it's written by scholars, and it has 
over 35,000 entries that respond in a positive way to critics who make inappropriate assumptions and false claims. So it's a wonderful source. Another wonderful source is the Interpreter Foundation website. If you go to interpreterfoundation.org, you will find some wonderful things, and you can search in there for great responses to critics. So that about wraps us up for today. If you have a specific question or concern that critics have raised on some point about the Book of Mormon or church history or some other issue, I would be happy to respond. And that includes responses to current LDS issues over social values and things that are believed now that weren't believed even 10 or 20 years ago. There are good answers to many of these issues. Send me an email. Send it to martinstanner at gmail.com. I'll be happy to respond. Join me again next week. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.